Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples past and present. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I am Jodie Lee Trembath, your familiar strangers today. Welcome to the podcast brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Schools of Culture, History and Language and Archaeology and Anthropology at Australian National University and the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. This is our first episode of 2018 and I have to say I am pretty excited that we've made it this far. And I don't mean the podcast, I mean the earth. But as of today, no nuclear fallout has eventuated, so I say victory. But if you are, like me, a little bit concerned about the state of the world, then perhaps you might consider writing for us at The Familiar Strange because we are looking for anthropological hot takes. So if you're keen to do something like that, tweet us at TFS Tweets or write to us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com. We would love to hear your take on the way the world is today. In today's episode, I'm interviewing Dr. Annie McCarthy. Dr. McCarthy teaches anthropology at the Australian National University, and her thesis, titled Under Development, Stories of Children and NGOs in Delhi, India, won all the awards, and she's turning it into a book which is going to be amazing. We talk about how anthropologists often go into the field with preconceived notions of the way the world is, and how we can derail our own projects if we're not willing to let go of those. We talk about the ways that humans impose categories on other humans, for example, by deciding this is what a proper childhood looks like or this is what motherhood is supposed to be. We talk about the importance of getting to know the anthropologist behind the anthropology. And we talk about stunting. Stunting is defined medically as low height for age, but Annie tells me that when you look into the literature, researchers often veer off into moral judgments about the way people in the global south live their lives and raise their children as if they are something less, something lacking. And this really gets Annie's goat, particularly when she thinks about the very full, very rich lives of the slum children she met in her research. So here it is, myself and Dr. Annie McCarthy talking about the many forms of stunted thinking. I was definitely always interested in working with children, but when I started my PhD, I also had no Hindi, and I really wanted to. Um, I really wanted to do my fieldwork in Hindi, so that meant kind of finding some Hindi speakers to do it with. And you know, I thought, oh well, you know, children might be good; they might be a bit more uh, gentle, kind, <laughs> you know, forgiving of my poor Hindi, which wasn't necessarily the case, although doing fieldwork in Delhi is a very good place to do fieldwork if you've got bad Hindi, because Delhi is just a confluence of bad Hindi, because (laughs) everybody um, there is from somewhere else, and um, Hindi is not most people's mother tongue, so... But the reason um, um, I kind of got to working with slum kids in particular was because I really wanted to work with Hindi-speaking children, so I I didn't want to conduct my fieldwork in English, so that kind of precluded working in any of the kind of more middle-class or elite kind of schools. Mm. Um, It's very hard to get into government schools to do research in India for a number of reasons. So kind of the next uh, natural kind of step for me was to kind of look at working with NGOs and um, I started off actually working in an orphanage for children who had um, HIV AIDS. That didn't really work out. And then I did some, 
you know, other trips to kind of other more kind of live-in facilities for kind of runaway kids or street kids, that didn't seem to kind of offer much possibility. So I ended up, yeah, working with slum kids. And yeah, that's, it was kind of, yeah, one of those things that just one thing led to another. Yeah. What went wrong with the the two former, the um, the <laughs> HIV clinic and well, the... in the orphanage for the HIV AIDS kids, I did I did about like probably at least eight ten weeks of field work there actually before oh, really? I gave up. Yeah, um, but actually they had the the people weren't that supportive um, of me being there, but but um, also they had these dogs. Um, the person that ran the um, organization also ha- ran the ran and run of the dog shelters in Delhi, and hmm. so there were all these dogs living in the um, the orphanage, and they were quite vicious oh. in some ways. So uh, they protected the kids quite, although they did also attack the kids sometimes. But they, oh. they're quite protective of the kids. So I did kind of get a kind of attacked kind of by one of these dogs. You, you got attacked by a dog. Well, it wasn't. It, it kind of. Yeah, it bit me, but it didn't get me properly. But oh, it was no. not pleasant. And there was this other. It was this. There was that dog who was quite bitey, and then there was this other dog that didn't have any um, back legs. Oh no, front legs. Yeah, I can, yeah, front legs. It didn't have any front legs. It had only back legs, and um, it was quite vicious as well. So it would just come at you, and um, it was quite terrifying, really, for a small dog with only two legs. It was surprisingly intimidating. <laughs> And so um, it actually made doing field work quite hard when you've got these kind of dogs coming at you from different angles. Wow, and that's not even a metaphor. No. It so, doesn't mean I won't go back there in the future and see really? where they're at. You would brave the dogs again? Well, presumably those dogs aren't still there. Like this is, we're talking like four years ago now. So presumably some of those dogs have passed on. And it, yeah, it was also quite sad. Like one of the younger boys was quite sick and in and out of hospital and, you know, like it would have been more, um, it would have been harder field work in terms of the, dealing with kind of children potentially dying. So your kids, can mm. we call them your kids? Yeah, we can call them that. That's what the NGO workers would call them, okay. our kids, to distinguish them from other NGOs' kids. It's all, it's, there's quite a lot of turf wars really in the kind of NGO-saturated world of Delhi. And that that was sort of part of what your thesis ended up being about, wasn't it? The way that uh, development agencies have one agenda and the children may be working within but also improvising within that agenda for their own agendas. Is that about right? Yeah, using the resources and programs offered by multiple NGOs to kind of not just one NGO as well to, to achieve that. For your kids then, do you think that their experience of working with an NGO would have been different than to the kids in the HIV clinic? Yeah, definitely, because those kids didn't have any parents, um, their kids in the HIV orphanage. And so they they lived in this place full time. And so while they went out to school, typically this was their kind of whole world and they had very different exposure, you know. So for slum kids, they also live with their families as well, of course. So they go home every night to their, mm. to their homes. And so they spend, you know, they might spend you know, three, three, four hours a day, up to three or four hours a day in the NGO, but they're still kind of in the home, in the community. They're not in like their whole world is not defined by these kind of ideas about childhood and development in mm. the same way that it was for those other children whose health was very extensively monitored, of course, as well. And you went into your into your fieldwork and into your PhD quite critical of the the world of development studies and development more generally. Mm. Why was that? Oh, uh, you know, I think just because of what I had read, essentially, I guess. Like I didn't really have any experience. Um, but, you know, I'd read all the kind of critical development literature. I thought, oh, okay, yeah, there's some real problems here. And so 
I did. I was really informed by a lot of those kind of critical um, positions when I went into my field work. But I also knew as an anthropologist that it's not possible to sustain, um, you know, one's own opinions in the in the face of kind of uh, if those opinions are different from one's informants. And ultimately one is there to represent the views of one's informants. So and that's kind of what I ended up doing, which was giving a much more kind of nuanced and kind of almost every day kind of look at why these development organisations were valuable to these kids. So can I back up? Um, in terms of those critiques, what are they? What, what's so bad about development? I mean, development should be, should be great, right? We're, we're trying to take care of the world. Well, I guess a lot of the critiques are about um, the mismatch between um, the aims of development and the kind of needs or beliefs or practices of the local population. Can you give me an example? Ferguson has in his early work all this stuff about how there was all these irrigation schemes and all this stuff in Africa and it just ended up making things so much worse for farmers. And so they tried to kind of just fly in these techniques that they thought, oh, you know, this is definitely going to increase production of crops and stuff and it just didn't. Because it worked in the West? Yeah, because it had worked in other places, yeah. And there's lots of cases about this in, in India and other places as well where kind of green revolution technologies have kind of sometimes even perpetuated pre-existing inequalities. Um, so while even when they have kind of produced more food, um, you know, other things like they've like disempowered women um, from their traditional roles in farming and stuff like that. So that's a really common critique of green revolution technologies in India in regards to kind of agricultural forms of development. Mm. And James Ferguson, of course, has this kind of um, more expansive idea about development as a kind of anti-politics machine. So it is a machine that um, that depoliticizes problems. So in creating um, kind of technical solutions to development problems, it kind of depoliticizes and, and takes the politics out of them and kind of um, obfuscates the kind of the implications of like kind of the global West in a lot of these um, inequalities and the perpetuation of these inequalities. So that's broadly some of the critiques. And then you came in and sort of had to go, well, actually, while that may be true. Mm, well, it's particularly interesting in the case of children because um, we all know, and this is this was had definitely informed my views before I got there as well, that we all know we've all seen those images of those children um, with the bloated bellies and the kind of fly bespotted eyes and things. We're very familiar with that rendering of the kind of abject state of child poverty and the way it's used as kind of a real lever to kind of encourage donors to to generously part with their their money but you know we also know and if you start reading anything about this you very quickly see that these children aren't given any voice in these kind of situations but are just presented at these very ab abject figures of kind of lack mm. and so and the powerful way that the child operates as a figure in our society where children can mobilize you know anything from kind of anxieties about same-sex marriage to kind of fears about children in detention and all these things that we see in our own society today. So I went in very critical of that and the way that development organisations have kind of targeted children and they've done so more and more in the last um, 30 years essentially since the kind of United Nations Declaration of the Rights of the Child which kind of really um, pushed ideas of participation for children more broadly as a kind of right. So they've kind of really taken it, taken that and run with it and kind of expanded these ch child programs massively and, and made all these claims about how their programs are child-friendly and elicit children's voices, but in the process of still doing a lot of what they were doing before. Mm. So I guess that was kind of what, what I was thinking when I, when, I came, when I arrived. But then um, very quickly I came to see that 
while there are elements of that, there are also ways in which even the moments in which children are kind of objectified in that way are often even kind of still able, potentially powerful for the children themselves who have moments of kind of stardom in like NGO films or plays or or are captured as the best dancer on film in their class or the best student in their class in terms of scholarly work and the way in which those moments of recognition, while they are used to kind of justify the success of development, are actually operate for children in a much more local way about in terms of recognition of their own skills and abilities, which they value highly. Like, did you have to wrangle with yourself over letting go of those preconceived notions? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit I did, but I very quickly saw how... Um, or not only did I ask the children if they liked, you know, if they liked going to the NGO, but it was very obvious that they did like going to the NGO. And it was very mm. obvious that they put a lot of time and effort into their kind of NGO homework and NGO activities. And being successful at development activities was a very was obviously very highly valued because of the amount of effort they put, many of them put into it. Not all of them. But I guess um, my research was really, you know, in particular kind of focuses on these kids that are kind of really were enthusiastic and trying to understand the reasons why they put time and effort and cultivated these kind of skills in thinking developmentally that were so valued by these NGOs. What do you think the core thing was? There, I think there are a number of reasons. Building up skills and development actually enables one to work in development um, mm. as a field. And so actually many of the boys, several of the boys that I worked with four years ago are now actually doing development workers in the same organizations um, in which they were participants um, four years ago. So they've actually um, translated their skills in development into kind of an employment opportunity, which is um, really interesting, but also given the kind of NGO and development soaked landscape of Delhi is actually very clever. And um, mm. so, and in terms of the other possibilities for employment open to them, it's actually a very wise and, and um, savvy move on their part. So I guess there's that really practical um, way in which skills and development can lead to employment in development and can also in the process lead one to become not an object of development, but an agent of development, which is itself a discursive shift, which, which, which I think is quite self-gratifying. You know, I think it feels mm. good to not be underdeveloped and to not be, you know, um, the target of hand-washing campaigns that imply that you're dirty and not be the object of these kind of campaigns that imply that you're violent or drunk and to, to suddenly be the one implementing those campaigns. I think there's a certain amount of kind of agency and at an individual level and empowerment that comes from making that shift. It's quite meta. Yeah, it is. It's meta. Because of the huge proliferation of development and organisations, these very small NGOs can't actually really make any physical changes to the kind of structural inequalities. They can't produce, you know, um, sanitation in these communities. They can't produce, you know, um, less corrupt forms of government. They can't even fix the schools, really. They can't, they can't do so many things, but they can produce ways of thinking, um, and that's what they do. They, they teach people how to think like development workers and that's not to say that that thinking kind of takes over their whole lives because I don't think it does but it I think children and um, some young people really do see the kind of benefits from learning these skills and then kind of putting them to use. You mentioned before um, the idea of lack and discourses around children in uh, the global south lacking and mm. I, I have a, a quote here from a paper that Annie wrote um, for uh, a seminar 
a couple of weeks ago, and I'm just going to read it to you. It says, the objectives of development spaces like these NGOs, and arguably also the school and the clinic, were thus largely aimed at bringing children's mental and physical growth in line with a norm. These spaces all sought to produce an active recalibration of children's bodies and minds in accordance with developmentally appropriate time. And I thought that was a really interesting way of putting it, that idea that um, I, I remember from the paper you were talking about that they, they lacked childness or childlikeness, mm. yeah. but they also lacked um, various other biological things, which has led you on to your next project. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. Can I just say something first about the, the, child, the um, child, childness? Mm. So I think that was one of the other things that these NGOs kind of, because as I was saying, um, they couldn't necessarily intervene by producing physical changes to the environment that these children lived in. They couldn't change the kind of conditions of the slum, which were, you know, undeniably really difficult conditions to live in. But they could, you know, through getting kids to sing and dance and draw pictures and perform in plays, kind of restore these children for, you know, four hours a week or four hours a day to kind of the proper activities of childhood. So rather than kind of being out working as child labourers or getting married at 14 and becoming a child bride, in the space of the NGOs, the development organisations produced states in which children were doing exactly what they were meant to be doing. In is, accordance, is there a, a inverted commas on proper and yeah, exactly what they're proper. supposed to yeah, be? Yeah, definitely doing? there is. You know, these kind of ideas about childhood that are encoded in like big, big global rights instruments, like United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child and stuff, which kind of deem certain activities proper to childhood and others. And then kind of the numerous development campaigns against things like child labour, for example, which which deem that to be kind of improper for children. And you see those campaigns where it's like you know toys not tools or like you know child marriage campaigns dolls not babies you know these kind of hugely kind of big statements that are made about kind of where children should be at so mm. and so also by kind of photographing these moments in which children were doing these childlike activities and posting them on their um facebook page and these other kind of things that these organizations do putting them in their reports, they kind of prove that development is happening because in that in the very moment in which children are kind of captured doing these things, they're kind of demonstrating developmentally appropriate kind of childhoods rather than the kind of abject childhoods associated with child labour or even just slum living in general. So yeah, that's why I started to think about kind of childhood in that way and then that's kind of fed me into my um, new project on stunting which has kind of emerged out of similar questions but also kind of got me thinking about these things in a different way in a sense in terms of a more kind of physically and embodied way that I hadn't thought about them before. In what way? Well because I had always heard people um uh, you know, and, and I'd read countless reports of people saying, oh, you know, this many children in India are stunted, 38%, I think it is at the moment, um, you know, stuff like this. And I always thought, oh, that's really, yeah, that's a bit, mm, something a bit off about that. Mm. But I hadn't, like, really thought about it. And my ideas about development had been very kind of, I hadn't necessarily thought about the ways that kind of biological development and kind of development these development organisations are linked and the kind of their goals for development are kind of intertwined so deeply that they're often quite inseparable. And I hadn't necessarily seen that at first, um, even though now reflecting upon it, I can definitely see it. So yeah. I've got some stats here that I took out of your paper. So mm -hmm. you say that um, today globally, one in four children or 159 million children are stunted. Yeah, so that's under the age of five. Yes. So one in four under the age of five. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that 
India has 48 million of them under the age of five. Yeah. Yeah. So when we're talking about norms, if you've got one in four children being stunted, what does that tell us about the the notion of norms? It, it does kind of raise questions about how these norms have been. And I'm not necessarily, you know, saying that this, the statistics are wrong, but I, I, I'm kind of really interested in questioning how these norms got formulated and um, how they work and how they function. And obviously they function in terms of a medical paradigm that kind of is aimed towards saving lives and preventing kind of the, the, the very serious kind of ills that result from chronic malnutrition and, you know, diarrheal illness. But um, they also do other things as well, you know, and these kind of these kind of frameworks set up these children in other ways. So it's not just a biological measure, but I think it also has um, quite social and political meanings that are not necessarily as acknowledged or examined when people kind of start parroting these figures. What do you think doctors or perhaps medical researchers would be a better better term to use? What do you think they mean when they're talking about stunting? What are, what what judgment? are they making? Well, it's really interesting because you start to read some of these medical papers and then you get very shocked. I, <laughs> well, this is what happened to me. I started reading them and I was like, whoa. So one of the first ones I read, it was like, if you have five instances of diarrheal illness under the age of three, you will have 12 less, I think 10, 10 to 12 less IQ points. It's like super deterministic kind of pr- prediction. Other stuff was like this this many instances of illness or this this much kind of level of nutrition and you'll have this much height differentials. Um, so I guess those are kind of quite, well, the IQ is an interesting measure in, in a sense that I think is an also a cult, not just a biomedical but also a cultural measure that we have to remember as anthropologists as well. Mm. But um, these scientists also bring in all these other things, you know, so... Stunting is not just correlated with, you know, or not just, you know, about low height for age. It's also kind of all these other things so that they become linked into it. So like lack of cognitive development, poor um, outcomes at school. You know, in one study, they it's focused on the role of unstimulating home environments in producing stunted children. And you start to see how there's these really cultural assumptions about how children should develop and the environments in which they should develop that come into these studies very, very quickly. You know, child stunting is being correlated with everything from kind of like maternal agency to kind of um, maternal education, um, yeah, unstimulating home environments. So yeah, what is that? So I don't know. Well, what I presume it is, it's basically a not the kind of um, home environment that we in the West expect, you know, kind of the active, engaged parent, you know, that's constantly um, engaging their child in kind of discursive exercises of debate about whether they can have that extra piece of chocolate um, or kind of going through the kind of, you know, doing two hours of reading a day and kind of being prompted to ask questions about, um, you know, their world and, you know, being engaged in kind of constant conversation and discursive practices. Like, I think, I guess, I think it's about those kind of things. I think it might have to do with, you know, who the primary carers are, whether the, the mother's there. I think a lot of these questions come back to the mother, of course, because, mm. you know, patriarchy's not dead. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I mean, not that any of Shock. that. Presumably Horror. none of your listeners had believed that it was. But um, 
so yeah, I don't know. Like I think a lot, a lot of it comes back to, you know, the judgments about certain behaviors and practices and dietary practices, engaging the child in certain forms of conversation, participation, encouragement. I mean, how could that even like, I just don't understand how anybody can correlate that with height. And and I'm just going to point out to listeners that I'm quite short. So I just, you know, there may be some. Because stunting is also mental, you know. It's also about cog- being cognitively stunted. And this is where they're kind of, it is measured by height, but then, you know, it, this is where these things get really confusing in the extent to which kind of cognitive stunting is kind of seen to be hand in hand with kind of this physical stunting. And I presume that's that the unstimulating home environment's more about that. I mean, uh, you know, maybe if you play, oh, I don't know, maybe if you do play footy with your kid for an hour in the yard every day, they grow quicker. I don't think they do, you know. Maybe if it was a dog. Maybe if you if you had them stand in cow patties. That was apparently what my parents were told to do. Uh, see, I just don't know. I mean, my dad um, was left in the briquette bin to eat briquettes when he was a kid. They're like bits of coal oh. that they used in the <laughs> – essentially, they're not exactly, you know, they used in the fire. That was Annie responding to my very blank face. <laughs> Baby bricks. I don't know. He, he's not even that short. <laughs> Definitely not cognitively stunted. We've had this conversation on a number of occasions and I know you're pissed about this. What is it that that gets your goat so much? Well, I think one of the reasons, because I know like lots of my colleagues that I have lots of respect for, uh, um, always cite these figures and kind of have never really given them a second thought in a way, or it doesn't really appear as if they have, maybe they have. Um, but I think one of the, I think it's like a very, in a sense, it's a very personal reason why I think I started to think about this stuff Um and why it kind of irked me from the very beginning. And I think that's because when I was a kid, I had an eating disorder. And I remember going, having to go to hospitals and get getting measured and all those kind of things you do when you have an eating disorder when you're, when you're a teenager. And I remember one of the doctors one day kind of sitting me down and saying, you're stunting yourself. You're stunting yourself. You, you're not going to be as tall as you should have been. You know, why don't you think about that? And it wasn't a very effective technique of kind of trying to talk a small child out of an eating a small teenager. I think I was 14 or something, 15 at the time. It's not a very effective technique, but, you know, this is what they did. This is what this doctor did. And I remember feeling so, you know, violated in a sense that kind of my whole, just having such a powerful sense that, you know, the word stunted was just so much more than a kind of like a bodily referent, you know. I just felt like, well, you know, you don't know anything about me. You don't know what I might do in my life. You don't know where I might go in my life. You know, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm going to be a few centimetres shorter than I would have been, but who even knows what I would have been? You know, how how are you to say that my life is somehow less than it could have been, I guess? You know, mm. I didn't express it like that because I was only 15 and actually quite ill at the time. Mm. But, um, you know. Retrospective. Yeah, yeah. I think that that, ex- that has always made me kind of, I don't know, when, and when I first started to hear people talk about stunting in kids in India and then having the experience of working for like basically a year with slum kids who were all shorter than they should be, and but who, but knowing they're very full and complete, personhoods I guess yeah just started to really um, irk me Mm. and so I'm not trying to say that they're kind of the effects of malnutrition and kind of illness diarrheal illnesses are not real but just kind of the framing of this um, in terms of stunting and the way it's used to kind of 
for anything in anything um, from kind of debates about the way in which the GDP of the Indian nation is going to be affected by having such a stunted population to, to various other debates just kind of really, I find really distressing and kind of have really s- serious um, resemblances to, I think, kind of earlier debates from the kind of late 19th century about ideas about degeneracy and these kind of ideas. Um, mm, and I you see mentioned them. eugenics. Yeah, and so I do think that kind of, well, it's eugenics that kind of enables this kind of population norm for us to measure people against. But also these kind of, yeah, eugenicists in the kind of late 19th, early 20th century and their kind of ideas about how urban populations in in, in, in London and in America and the kind of poverty that were associated with them were kind of like, get, you know, the end of the race or producing a degeneration in the race that needed to be prevented and that these people needed to be um, stopped from breeding because these people were breeding faster than the kind of purer, purer forms or purer versions of the race, you know, i.e. themselves and the yeah. other kind of other, other more wealthier classes. And so the kind of discourses about that because even though these people are so um degenerate and kind of um prone to all these ill health they're see- they're still somehow able to reproduce you know ridiculously um so that's another one of the kind of ironical tensions in kind of um these debates as well because yeah even the eugenicists thought that they um these people reproduce at a far greater rate than the quality stock the quality of the rest of the quality of the population stock. And this this was a huge problem for the overall quality of the population stock. Mm. So sometimes I see kind of, yeah, real resonances with with these kind of um, historical kind of ways of framing people um, that, and that I do with stunting. But interestingly, I even um, just this week I was reading this article, I think it was yeah, in The Guardian um, from last week or the week before, and it said it was kind of an article pointing to the, you know, for a long time scientists have thought that, you know, stunting is basically irreversible by the age of two. So it's kind of, it's all over for you basically if you haven't had the right nutrition and inputs by the time you're two. The first 100 days are really critical and then it's all the mo- essentially it's all the mother's fault because a child under the age of two, I mean, we, no one's pointing to these two-year-old kids and going, look what you've done, Henry. Mm. Morally delinquent. Yeah, like what have you done to yourself, Henry? They probably wouldn't be called Henry because they're, they're usually brown kids. You don't usually apply these labels to white kids, which is another thing that's quite. So I was reading this article in the Guardian, and um, that that it was kind of just trying to say that oh, you know, maybe it's not um so bad. Maybe it's not so irreversible as we first thought. But the headline for this article was something like "All is not lost for the stunted child." Oh. and um. Even though the article had kind of had got, had begun by kind of being a bit uncomfortable about the term stunted and being like, oh, it's a bit awkward to still be talking about people like that. And I was like, yes. But then like, why would you call <laughs> the headline of the article, All Is Not Lost, is very emotive and very, is again, playing into all that um, ideas that all was lost, mm. um, which I don't think it was. I mean, and, you know, I also read another study um that described child death as just the tip of the iceberg, you know. So you get all this kind of, it's like, okay, so these kids have survived, um, you know, and but they kind of, the rest of their life is totally called into question by these paradigms. Mm. Um, and and the, the life of the nation more broadly um, in terms of the way it kind of is played out in debates about, yeah, national GDP and productivity and population quality, all these kind of things. Sounds like a great way to blame women for all of the problems of the world. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it, in a sense, it is some of the rehashing about that women, poor people, poor communities, different, you know, it's about, again, blaming culture, different forms of culture, you know, unstimulating home environments, of course, you know, different, different culturally 
specific ways of um, raising children might be labelled unstimulating. So, but, you know, um, we start to think about the kind of, yeah, the, the real kind of cultural ways these kind of things manifest, I guess, and mm. um, starting to question that more. And that's where I became kind of interested in actually speaking to children about their growth and not necessarily coming up to them and going, are you stunted? But because um, I don't necessarily know if that term would have much meaning for them. I might. That's one of the things I'd like to find out. But um, to talk about how they see themselves and how they see their growth, their height, how they see others, how they see the growth of others and the, their relationships to them and whether kind of biological growth um, has any kind of other meanings as it does in these in these contexts in which the kind of stunted, the form in which stunting kind of operates as a biomedical tool, but also as making a lot of statements about culturally specific ideas about child development. If you're if you're not going to go up to children and say, are you stunted? Then what's your plan? What's your thoughts for this next um, period of fieldwork? I'm going to go back, be going back to Delhi, for, like having not been there for four years. So I think that I, in some ways, I won't actually know till I get there, like in mm. about how I'm going to, how I'm going to tackle this and how I'm going to try and reconnect and the extent to which I'm going to try and reconnect with the old organisations I worked with, the kind of really extensive presence of NGOs in Delhi is also very dynamic. So it's constantly kind of shifting and changing. Mm. So um, I think once I get there, it's going to be about, you know, kind of figuring out what's happened in the last four years. And it's a bit hard to do that from here always. But yeah, in terms of trying to get to kind of questions about children's size, physicality, I do want to kind of go and visit some health um, bodies. So I'll probably start, you know, by visiting some kind of bigger organisations like the World Health Organisation in India and seeing what they have to say and, you know, and kind of maybe work my way down, try and visit some local um, maternal child and health clinics, Anganwadi clinics, they're called. Um, these kind of things to see the ways in which children's weight and height is measured in those. And then again, trying to build up a kind of a group of children between the, about the ages of 10 and 15 in which to kind of run focus groups or interviews with activities with about how they understand things like their height and their growth. And then, you know, from there, you know, asking questions about diet, about the kind of foods that are associated with growth, the kind of spiritual um, amulets or protective tools or kind of religious practices that are associated with kind of health and protection of small children and kind of so so really kind of taking a quite a broad um, lens on this just to kind of see what there is and then kind of follow up I guess the mm. really interesting leads and at the same time I, I also want to do a lot more archival work to just keep figuring out how these norms were created in terms of child growth because Indian children have been being measured um, since the 1930s at least but perhaps even before so I'd like to chase up some of those records as well about anthropometry in India and, and um, the ways children's development has been observed and written about so there's quite a lot of archival work to do as well. Mm, where's that? A bit of that will be in India and then a bit of that I will also be looking at kind of more global um, kind of records and standards. So I'm I'm not sure that might take me um, to different parts of the world. I don't know. Um, so you said that you you haven't been to your field site in the last four years, mm. and um, you you wrote in your paper you described yourself as being in between both temporally and spatially. Mm. Can you tell us what you meant by that and how that relates to having been away? Well, yeah, I just, um, I guess I'm in between in terms of the fact that I finished my PhD, but don't necessarily have a um, next docking point in terms of a kind of fixed job or a fixed kind of place to 
park myself, I guess. But also, yeah, I'm, I'm really, it's been too, a very long time and too long, really. I never wanted it to leave it this long um, before going back to the field. It's really been a kind of a case of things in my life not being conducive to um, getting back there. So in a way, I'm feeling quite worried about that, what that's going to mean um, for my relations with the people that are there and to what extent I'm going to have to rebuild kind of trust and connections again. Um, so I do feel kind of really unsure of, you know, my both my relationship to my field site and also unsure about my relationship to kind of, you know, my broader future in, in regards to kind of, yeah, an academic environment that is increasingly difficult to find a footing in. Let's mm. put it that way. <laughs> mm. So you have been teaching yeah. um, since you finished your PhD. And I remember you saying once that teaching helps in terms of sort of cementing in all of the stuff that you talk about in your PhD, but you don't really realize you know until you're teaching it. Yeah, I think teaching has really helped me because also I didn't have a background in anthropology before my PhD, so I'm trained as a historian, and um, which is why I always flee back to kind of historical texts when I'm at my most anxious because, you know, they kind of there's none of the social anxiety there when you're just reading it and a, a swashbuckling tale about eugenicists in the 1870s. <laughs> um, you know, that's just a delightful evening, isn't it? Um, but <laughs> my favourite Saturday night. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I personally really enjoy it, but um, that's, yeah, I think my own proclivities but yeah teaching has been really good because it has enabled me to kind of get back to basics but also solidify a kind of a lot of my knowledge of key ideas in anthropology but also learn how to you know express that and explain that to students which is of course sometimes not always that easy and um and I really like that challenge I like the the challenges of um, pedagogy actually I find them really interesting and engaging and I think that's because I come from a whole family of teachers and essentially probably teaching is my vocation Mm. but um yeah so I've really enjoyed it and I think it's been really good for me as an anthropologist as well because um it's kind of I also feel a lot more confident in saying that I'm an anthropologist so in my kind of anthropology-ness having done this having done almost a year of teaching in anthropology now so and kind of yeah when the students are looking at you with their kind of glowing eyes and ask you a question and um you know you know the answer to it yes hopefully you know usually what happens most times yeah (laughs) um and I think yeah so that's a really good good feeling and I think I've learned a lot doing that and I do enjoy writing lectures and kind of trying to make things accessible and interesting um I'm not I'm not even really sure if I if I teach like a a typical anthropologist would teach but um I think you know I'm still kind of developing as well in, in that regard. That makes it sound like there are norms and that you're Whoa, concerned I, you're I, lacking. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm always wondering about actually if there are norms, mm. if there is kind of a norm of anthropological teaching but also ways of engaging. And it, it seems like there are. I mean, we do set up norms of good practice, you know, about, you know, continuing to engage with one's field side and to, you know, produce research that is relevant and kind of, that you share and bring back to your participants. And there are these kind of norms and expectations that kind of guide anthropology and extent, but the extent to which various people live up to them at various times is often quite opaque. Yeah, I guess, I mean, that would be something that I would be really interested in our listeners responding to if they had thoughts about whether or not anthropology has norms in terms of pedagogy and norms in terms of, and particularly with undergraduate pedagogy, I guess we have a sense of 
as PhD students and I realize you're a few years past the feeling of being a PhD uh, student now, but of, of what you're supposed to feel as a PhD student. Mm. But what about for undergraduate teaching and, and for that matter, coursework in general? Is Are there norms? I mean, and there must be. And we, of course, hold students to account in terms of a norm by kind of grading their assignments. Mm, um, this is true. So it's interesting in terms of articulating what it is we're looking for in kind of an, an anthropology student, but then also, you know, an anthropology field worker and an anthropologist um, as a kind of a lifelong researcher or someone who's, you know, going to be established in the field of anthropology. So I guess just to finish it up, um, maybe if you can tell us about what you're teaching and how you're tying your experience as being an anthropologist into your experience of teaching anthropology. Yeah, okay. Well, I um, this semester I'm teaching a course called Culture and Person, which is on personhood. Um, and last semester I taught a course called Gender in Cross-Cultural Perspective, which is about gender in cross-cultural perspective. You know, obviously I don't talk about my own work and my own research every week, but I do want them to get a, a sense of kind of what it is like to be an anthropologist and what it is like to do field work and, and what it is like, you know, and, and a, get a sense of the idea of the kind of person of the anthropologist because, and that's critical for both courses, the gender course as well, reflecting on the way kind of gender, age, class kind of um, affects the way we do field work, affects the kind of ideas we come up with and, you know, shapes our positionality in very dynamic ways. So I kind of want them to think about that. So I often do use myself and as an example of the way anthropologists do come up against these kind of questions. So in the gender course, I did, I talked at the quite a bit about my experience of kind of being a woman and, and in India and um, and an unmarried woman and, you know, a queer woman at that. And so how I managed that with my, the people that I worked with, but also in kind of my everyday life of kind of navigating the kind of spaces in Delhi. So um, I do like to kind of give them a sense of the kind of person behind the kind of anthropological text they might kind of read regularly in class, but obviously they don't usually meet any of those anthropologists. And um, I think it's kind of interesting to kind of see that other side of it. And we're, we're talking a bit about that now in personhood um, in my course at the moment. And yesterday I talked quite extensively in a lecture on um, childhood and the beginnings of personhood about my own work and how my ideas of childhood were, ch were changed and and kind of challenged by my own fieldwork. Well, Annie is at the moment putting in a book proposal that I am very hopeful will get turned into a book <laughs> because I can't wait to read it. Dr Annie McCarthy, thank you so much for your time. This has been brilliant. No worries. Thank you, Jodie. So that was it, me and Dr. Annie McCarthy. Today's episode was produced by me, Jodie Lee Trembath, with help from the other familiar strangers, Julia Brown, Simon Theobald, and our executive producer is Ian Pollock. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating, pretty please, or a review, even better, with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show, and it helps us make the show better. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. A recent post on the blog was by our own familiar stranger, Julia Brown. It's called An Annual Health Check, and it's about your New Year's resolutions. Did you decide to be healthier this year? Well, maybe you should think about your social health as well as your physical health. Check it out on www.thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com. 
tweet at TFS Tweets or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Our music's by Pete Debrow. There's a link to his EP in the show notes. Special thanks today go to Nick Trembath from Adelphi Digital, Julia Miller, Will Grant, Tina Salo, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. And until next time, keep talking strange.